This special episode of CRST the Podcast is brought to you by Glaucos. You're listening to CRST the Podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hey, everybody. Welcome. My name is Paul Singh. I'm a glaucoma specialist out in southeastern Wisconsin, and I'm solely excited to be here today to, to hang out with some two amazing colleagues, surgeons, educators, and uh, I'm actually going to let them introduce themselves, uh, and we'll go from there. And hi, it's great to be here. My name is David Stevens. I'm a cataract cornea glaucoma surgeon in Fort Myers, Florida, and I'm excited to be here with you guys. Hello, everyone. This is Savar Tamorian. I'm a cataract and glaucoma specialist at Harvard Eye Associate, located in South Orange County, California. Awesome. Awesome. So as you guys know, these are two amazing colleagues, and we're going to have some fun talking about glaucoma. Doesn't get better than that, guys. And I think you know, today, this first episode, we have a few different episodes where I'm kind of break things down. And this first episode, I wanted to focus on just how much we've seen a proliferation of technology and how we have so many options. Our quote unquote toolbox has truly expanded. And before we get into any specific details, I want to get your thoughts on just in general, your perspective on kind of what is controlled glaucoma. In other words, when you address a patient, you know, I know we have drops, we have SLT, we have MIGs, we have lasers and other things we can do. And how do you conceptually put that all together? Are you always starting with drops? Do you always offer SLT? And, and kind of how does that change depending on your perspective uh, on the compliance and the issues that we face in compliance? So Seb, why don't you start us out talking about your kind of overall general gestalt and what is controlled glaucoma and how you start to offer different technologies? Yeah, you know, when I think about managing glaucoma, as much as we'd love to cookie cutter things, I think we'd all agree that you have to individualize the care. And I always have this imaginary patient in my Mrs. Smith, who I always refer back to. And our job is simply to take her now, which is when we're diagnosing her with glaucoma and take her to all the way to the end of her life. And we want to get her there with the best functional vision possible or the highest quality of life. But, you know, unlike the weather in Hawaii, it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows on this journey. So the way I presented to Mrs. Smith is as we're reaching all of these obstacle points, when the pressure goes up or there's changes on the testing, what treatment options would be the best in terms of benefits to risk ratios to get the patient to really good functional vision at the end? And I think earlier intervention is important. The question is, what's going to be most important for that patient? You know, in terms of identifying what ideal IOP is, it's going to be different for everyone. But really, the takeaway message is being able to provide functional vision for the end of their life and doing it with the most benefit with the least amount of risk. And the good news is when it comes to glaucoma, we don't just have options, as I like to say, cheese or pepperoni pizza. That's what it was about 15, 20 years ago. Now we have so many different toppings to pick from. We can be the chefs in our kitchen, creating something unique for each of our patients. I love your analogies, man. <laughs> There's so much fun. Uh, David, that's great stuff, Seb. And David, so when you, when you look at a patient, I mean, are you in general thinking about kind of compliance right away? And, and how, how are you address, is are these new technologies helping you address that when you consider what is controlled glaucoma? For sure. I think, um, you, you know, a lot of patients sort of associate glaucoma with medications. Now, you know, their friends are on drops, their mom or dad were on drops if they had uh, glaucoma and have a family history. And so I think we're changing our minds about what uh, controlled glaucoma looks like. How do we intervene early on? And then also discussing with our patients, say we have things that can either get you off of medications now, or um, if we're having a brand new patient, um, what can we do for you now to give you potentially years of control without needing to start medications right away? And so I think the conversation, um, for me at least, I'm kind of lucky to be in that situation where I get 
new glaucoma patients who haven't necessarily had a lot of treatments already. And we get to start that process already discussing that, um, hey, what's this gonna look like for the rest of your life? And so starting early on with continuous control treatments, whether that's SLT, whether that's um, a MIGS procedure for cataract surgery, um, has really given us a lot of options to customize it for our patients. So it's a really exciting time to be a, a young glaucoma a doctor now because we have so many things to choose from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, drug delivery, they even mentioned earlier, is another way to kind of help us for the short term and not, who knows, even a little longer term. We'll see how that goes. But, you know, I think you guys both mentioned something really interesting was this idea of a journey. And, and Seb, you kind of put a great result by saying, hey, you know what? My goal is to keep you functional, keep you kind of at a high level of functionality until the day you die, right? And so that is that journey. And at every step of the way, we might be changing things. It's not one solution that's going to control your glaucoma forever. But at this given point in time, in my opinion, this is what I think is going to be best for you to help maintain a high quality life and protect you from hopefully not getting worse uh, in your glaucoma damage. And that's kind of the idea. And I think that's really now we, because we have all these different options uh, that we just mentioned earlier, we are able to kind of cookie, not play, basically create a cookie cutter approach, but actually kind of customize it as well. And so to, to get to that level, are you guys offering now, so if a patient comes in first line, new patient for glaucoma, are you offering SLT first line? Is that something that's part of your normal regimen? Are you picking and choosing, okay, this patient might be a good candidate for SLT, but otherwise I'm gonna do drops first. And how does that work in your practices? Why don't you talk about SLT and how that plays a role in your practice? Uh, yeah, that's, you know, it's a good point that um, David brought up earlier, you know, with our newer patients, they're a lot more open to treatment paradigms, not necessarily starting with drops. So with a patient that's just recently diagnosed, uh, I just say, you know, we used to treat your glaucoma with eye drops, but newer studies have shown a light therapy will give you a better outcome. And I just proceed to give a recommendation that way. I would say about 90% of people go with that recommendation and we just move on. With patients that had been on treatments before or had family and friends that were on drops before, they're a little more hesitant to go down that pathway because they're just not used to it. David, how about you? How, how are you incorporating SLT? Is it a first line for you for most patients? Or are you picking and choosing or how's that work? Yeah, for most patients, I um, am offering SLT first line. I think, like Seb was saying, it's very well received for new glaucoma patients. I think the important thing is making sure that we give what we would recommend and not, um, I mean, it's important to present all of the options, but also say, hey, this is what I really feel like is best for you, you know? Um, and so um, offering that as first line and, and the vast majority of patients are, are receptive. Um, and then a lot of people do wanna get into a little bit more detail. Um, and so we kind of talk about what it's like, what the recovery is. That's what most people care about is, when am I back to normal? Is it gonna hurt? you know, it, it, that sort of thing. What What's my return to function going to be if we're doing something to the patients? And so I think taking a little time to explain that um, really gets them started um, on that path. And then I say, hey, you know, you may need drops. There's no really drop-free life with glaucoma. And so we may start those in the future, but this is an excellent way to start for you. I think you're absolutely right. I think all these different technologies have helped us appreciate the impact of compliance. And that leads to the MIGS now, right? So now we have, we had, you know, SLT, we have drug delivery, we have those drops, we have other lasers like Micropulse and other things we can do. But then we also have surgeries that we can do that are also minimally invasive. We have it with cataract surgery, with the stents, the eye stent, and also the, um, the uh, hydrus. We also have other viscodilating and cutting procedures as well that can be done as a standalone as, as well. So let me ask you guys, when you have a patient with a cataract, 
are you automatically just for to be clear are you guys automatically if they can't qualify doing some type of mixed procedure at the same time of cataract surgery is that a, an assumption now for you guys absolutely yes yeah if, as long as they have glaucoma you should always consider here's an opportunity that you're already going to be in the eye working may as well go in there and do something else the question is going to be which will be the right procedure for for the patient and I think certainly when it comes to glaucoma surgery and cataract surgery, we want to minimize the risk, maximize the benefits. So when you can introduce something like an eye stent inject W or even an eye axis or combine those together, I think gives you an opportunity to be really successful. So you can meet those primary goals you talked about, keeping the patient's costs down for medications, keeping their side effects down by alleviating medication. So I would definitely take advantage of it. If you're in the eye working, doing cataract surgery, gosh, figure out what's the surgery that's right in your hands and what's best for the patient and integrate those things together. So when you have a cataract, David, and, and you're having all these, obviously a lot of options for MIGS procedures now, are is stenting kind of your go-to or, and if it is, why versus let's say some cutting procedures, or let's say, do you combine them all? I'm just curious in your thoughts. Yeah. When I have someone in the office who has a cataract and glaucoma, it's really a no brainer at this point to offer a MIGS procedure at the same time. And, and like Seb was saying, it, you know, we're already in the eye. We want to do something to help take care of your glaucoma as well. And something that really offers minimal to no additional risk compared to cataract surgery alone. And so I want to leave myself with options in the future and also give my patients the best visual outcome from their cataract surgery, because we do know that glaucoma patients tend to have more refractive error issues after cataract surgery, whether that's ocular surface related or concomitant procedures. And so I generally um, combine cataract surgery with an eye stent inject W concomitantly um, in any of my mild to moderate uh, glaucoma patients. And, and I, I just make sure to do a, a good uh, gonioscopy in clinic to make sure that they have a good open angle. Um, but even with my patients with narrow angle glaucoma, a lot of times their angles open up really nicely when the cataracts are out and we can place um, eye stents or do a goniotomy type procedure to uh, get them off medications. Um, I have combined eye stent inject W with eye access in a few cases. And one thing that I noticed um, was really nice day one is that there was really minimal um, post-operative hyphema compared to what I thought and what I saw intraoperatively. You know, when we make those little goniotomy openings, there's quite a bit of blood reflux from those openings. But the next day, I really couldn't tell much of a difference um, from their post-op appearance. And the patients had good vision day one as well. So I really want to give them good vision quickly, but also try to get them off medications. And so um, I think JW is an excellent start for that. Yeah, I think this balance of, of efficacy, of course, as well as high safety and more predictable post-operative kind of regimen post-operative course, I think is really big benefit of the eye stent inject. Uh, but also, you know, I think you mentioned the eye access. You know, Seb, just tell everybody out there in case people aren't quite familiar with the eye access, just got approved recently, these microgoniotomy tool. Tell us a little bit about what it is and maybe kind of how you've incorporated the eye access device, one of the Glaucos' newest devices to create these microgoniotomies. Tell us a little bit more about it and how you use it. The beauty here is you can pick how many of these little fenestrations you want to make. Usually if you're doing it at the same time with a, let's say I sent inject W, you can do three, you know, outside to the left, down the middle, and then down to the right, or, or you can do them independently. You know, I'm a big fan of also before I combine procedures, I want to spend some time to make sure that each of these individual procedures really works the way I want them to. So as my introduction came out with I access, I actually just do them as a standalone by itself just to see how it does. And I'll typically do somewhere between four to five fenestrations. And actually the results have been pretty good as standalone by themselves. 
So now I'm not hesitant to feel like, hey, if I'm going to add this on to another mixed procedure at the same, same time as cataract surgery, am I really getting the bang for my buck? Uh, but that's basically how it works. It's straightforward, just as we discussed, that's what you want it to be so you can get the best benefit with the least amount of risk. So these are 210, 220 micron little openings you create a little tree find, right? And the question I, I get from colleagues, you mentioned as a standalone, I've, I've done the same thing. I've used iAccess as a standalone. I've also combined it with other MIGS procedures like stenting, et cetera. And you're having the control, like you said, but also keeping as much of the TM uh, still native because we do think there's potentially this pump mechanism and having more real estate with a trabecular meshwork to kind of go back in later on, put a drug delivery device, like say an IDOS, which is Glaucose's a Travaprost oil, uh, that delivery system that's hopefully gonna be approved in the next couple of years, you know, might be able to go in the nasal angle there. So having more TM to work with, to me is a benefit. But the question that comes up from colleagues, well, these 200 little micron openings, is that enough power? Is that enough of an opening to allow us to actually create a reduction of IOP or to achieve that IOP reduction. David, any thoughts on those 220 microns? Are that big enough to make a difference? Any theoretical kind of perspective on that? They're also not destructive. You know, we're not, we're not removing the entirety of the trabecular meshwork. And so it's, it, it really does save some space for later. You know, if we did need to remove the ice stent injects later, they're super easy to take out, very um, atraumatic. And the angle to do, and then you come back with a larger goniotomy procedure. And, and I like pairing standalone goniotomies with ECP as well to get a couple extra points of reduction. That's a great point as well. Uh, you know, so, and my, my thought is, you know, these 220 microns, look, 880 microns is what the eye stent and jack is, that the lumen, right? And we do know from phase three data that we get significant reduction of IOP compared to cataract surgery alone, as well as a greater reduction of, of medication burdens. So we do know that two eye stent injects have a significant efficacy. So if there's 80 microns there, who, who, why, why can't we think that 220 microns would be enough to open it up? Now the question is, how long does it last? We don't know that. That's the data. We don't know how long it lasts. Will it close up over time? But I think as, as a standalone, like to Seth's point, it does make sense. But also as an adjunct uh, with other mixed procedures, it makes sense. And I just want to make sure that all of our colleagues out there know, you know, from the ISET inject perspective, there's a couple of data sets that have been published last year that not everyone knows about. I was, I was part of these couple of studies. And it was based upon the phase three trials. Just to remind everybody, in the phase three trials, we actually did give people questionnaires. So we'll the VFQ25, a, a, a basic quality of life questionnaire, and the ocular service disease index, OSDI scores. And we published this paper along with Tom Salmons and others showing us that in quality of life was better, we had a greater improvement in quality of life in patients who have the cataract surgery with the Istent and Jack W, or the Istent and Jack rather, compared to the cataract surgery alone. And that's important because we looked at dry eye, better improvement in ocular surface disease. And if you look at the VFQ25, activities like driving, overall general health, overall vision, was there was a greater improvement in those scores in people who had a stent as well. And it seemed to be correlated with those who were off of medications. And, and my anecdotal experience, and I've, we've had some data on viscodilation with uh, stenting. And what we have found in our practice was the actual IOP reduction was very similar between the stent alone and the viscodilating with the stent. But we did find was that we had more percentage of patients off of medications and less non-responders. So in other words, you know, you put an eye stent, most of the time they do great, but every once in a while, you don't get a great response. You don't get the response you wanted for some reason, right? To me, what I found in my practice when we combine MIGS, whether it's doing microgoniotomies or doing viscodilation and then doing the stenting, we found that more percentage of patients achieved that reduction that we were expecting. Uh, not necessarily gonna get down to 10. I mean, you're getting that middle teens, which is what conventional outflow MIGS will get you but more percentage of patients were off of meds. So when I have someone, even if it's pre-parametric early glaucoma and they're on like four meds or three meds, that's the kind of patient where now I am kind of combining 
some type of vasodilation with the stent or do little microgoniotomies with the stent because I want to hedge my bets basically, I'm trying to get the best chance of getting them off that meds or get that response that I want to the middle to upper teams. And so that's kind of where I've seen the benefit more than you're getting so much more reduction of IOP than the stenting alone. And so I think it's important to recognize when we talk about success. I'm going to last couple of questions before we end this uh, podcast here was how do we define success? How do we know the I stent inject, let's say, for instance, really did work? Because you know, everyone thinks, well, it didn't go down to 12 off, you know, 12, so it can't it kind of kind of worked. But I've had patients where the pressure was 18 or 16 on a topical BGA, and it was let's say 19 after an I stent inject but they're off of medications. And I, for me, that was successful because they're off the meds. So to describe kind of your definition of success with MIGS or with ISET Inject and how you describe it to patients in general. So Dave, why don't you talk about that and then let me get Seb's opinion. Yeah, so when I'm talking with my patients about ISET Inject, you know, it's, hey, we're gonna take your cataract out and put a new lens in to help you see better. And at the same time, we'll put a couple of uh, small glaucoma stents in the natural drains to help lower your pressure and hopefully get you off medications. And I think I'm trying to think about it from their perspective, what's going to make their life better. And, and usually that is thinking about their glaucoma less and having less anxiety about their disease. And so um, the definition of control, you know, from a medical standpoint is, is their disease worsening? But the other component is how is their life affected by their disease from things other than than vision and you know the dry eye component is huge. Um, I, I kind of think of it two pronged. One is is their disease controlled? Is it going to affect their vision later in life? But also how how are we improving their life now? That's great. Uh, Seth, what are your thoughts on how you define success? And you know when when you're looking at a patient who has a say cataract and glaucoma and drops, what are you trying to achieve? Let's say let's say for instance the eye stent inject. Yeah, I think it's a good question. You know, I, I think just as there's so many options in terms of what we can do, our definition of success is different depending on what's important for the patient. Again, trying to be really patient centric with what their needs are. And you brought up a great case where if a patient is on drops and they're irritated because of it, my definition of success is getting them off their drops because their eyes are irritated. For other people, it's the cost of their medicines. For other people is they can't remember to put their drops in. So how we define success you have to prioritize it based upon what's important for the patient. So we have to be nimble enough to change our definition because it's not an easy question. How do you define success? That means different things to different people. So I would say really take a patient centric view on what's important for the patient. And did we address their primary and secondary issues? And one thing I just want to circle back to, because uh, you and David made a great point about other procedures where you want to preserve TM we always think about what options are available now, but we also should always think game plan wise, what options may be available in the future, like iStent Infinite or like IDOS. You know, you want to preserve some of that TM that's left behind that if you for some reason want to go ahead and implant like an IDOS type of material in the eye, you have an opportunity to do that. So just as it's important for us to be able to play with what options are available now, we always have to be forward thinking about what's the next step. It's one of the most interesting things that I learned in a fellowship in glaucoma. Just before I started off my first case, my attending was like, all right, Sev, before you start, what's your next surgery on this eye? You always have to be game planning one step ahead. 
That's some great advice, guys. Great advice. I mean, and just to wrap it up there as well. I mean, I think for me, that's exactly what I, I approach it as, you know, some patients, the pressure is really high on meds. I don't mind if they're back on meds. I want to get the pressures down to a safe level. Some people, the pressures are really well controlled, even with that topical PGA. I don't care if they're a, point, a couple points higher. I just want to get them off that topical medication, help their quality of life. So you're right. The definition is going to change for each patient, each, each anatomy, of course, each severity level as well. But the idea is that not ignoring it and not just saying, I'm not going to do it. If you can think about cataract and makes my way of thinking about a cataract makes patient as if when they have a cataract, I used to say, oh, they have a cataract and they happen to have glaucoma. I'm going to take care of the cataract. That was my emphasis. Now, if I have a glaucoma patient as a cataract, hey, I got a, a glaucoma patient who happens to have a cataract. The cataract is just an excuse to go back in or go in and take care of their glaucoma as well. So I'm always thinking about how I can approach and how I decrease the chances of compliance being an issue long-term as well. And just a last, just a last more data-centric a push here. Another study that we were published last year showed us that when you compare cataract surgery alone versus cataract with descent, doing a post hoc analysis of the phase three trials of the ice to inject, we, we basically uh, segregated the patients into three, four groups, uh, three groups. Patients that are baseline unmedicated IOP of 25 or less, 25 to 30, or greater than 30. What was interesting when you look at the post hoc analysis in the cataract surgery alone group, the, I, the IOP reduction was real. Five and a half millimeters of mercury, 5.8 max is what IOP reduction was with, with cataract surgery alone. But it didn't matter what your baseline unmedicated IOP was, whether you're 25 or you're 30, it was still five to five and a half millimeters of mercury reduction. But as you increase the baseline unmedicated IOP with the ISEN group, it increased the reduction of IOP. So it was about six and a half at 25 or less baseline unmedicated IOP, but around 30 or greater, it was around nine millimeters of mercury reduction. So as you increase the unmedicated IOP, you get a further reduction of IOP. So that does show us there's a difference in how it's affecting the outflow than cataract surgery alone, but we don't wash everybody out. So we don't really know the actual impact of the ISEN that way. But if you look at the data, it does show us that compared to cataract surgery alone, we are doing more with those two small stents. So I just think it's an exciting time for us to approach this idea, as you've mentioned, said this interventional approach, appreciating the impact that compliance has and poor compliance has on quality of life and the ability for us to maintain these patients long-term and stability long-term as well. Guys, this is a lot of fun. I'd love to keep going, but I think for the sake of time, we'll, we'll stop here. But uh, we have a couple more episodes coming up with, the, with, with some more glaucoma discussions and uh, please stay tuned and, and please log in or check in with us uh, for another episode. Thank you guys so much. This is awesome. A lot of fun. <laughs>